So our main sermon text for this morning is another part of Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44 verses 6 to 22. These are verses that look specifically at the nature of idolatry and how idolatry works in our hearts unto death and how the worship of God works in our hearts unto life. And so Ryan will come and read that for us. After that, Sadie will come and read for us from Psalm 135, which again speaks to us of the nature and power of idolatry. Don will then come and read for us from Psalm 94, which talks about the other side of the coin, the nature of the worship of God. And then finally, Anna will come and read for us from 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that tells us about the ultimate end to which we're pointed if we persevere in our faith, if we persevere in worship to God. So let me uh, pray briefly right now for this reading and preaching of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we know that you desire for each of us to turn away from idols and to turn to you. God, would you make this so in our hearts this morning by the proclamation of your word, by the reading of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 22. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There's no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that it is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over that half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, 
I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Psalm 94, 7-11 And they say, The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Well, this morning, I want to look at the nature of worship, and I want us to see how what we worship in our lives will lead to either ruin or restoration. That if we worship the true God, then our worship will transform us unto life. And yet, if we worship idols, then we will be transformed unto death. And we can only be freed, ultimately, to worship God by the mercy that God himself has provided. So that's where we are going this morning. And so in order to get there, I first do want to just kind of give you a definition of worship, a practical working definition of worship. 
And then from there, we're going to compare the worship of God versus the worship of idols and see the fruit of both. So to begin with, what is worship? The text we have from Isaiah 44 this morning obviously speaks a lot on idolatry and its foolishness and its evil. The evils of idolatry are numerous, and we'll only look at some of those evils this morning, but really the most central evil of idolatry is that it gives worship where worship is not due. Now, if you didn't understand what worship is, then this concern about idolatry may may sound simply like a religious or ceremonial concern, like perhaps the problem with idolatry is just that you're singing songs to the wrong deity or you're attending the wrong religious service or you're bowing down to the wrong God. But worship in Scripture does not mainly refer to something that is merely religious or ceremonial. Worship refers to something that every human being does every moment of our lives with every breath that we take. David Foster Wallace was a great novelist. He was a man who was not a Christian at all or even religious in any way, and yet he recognized how human beings are always given over to worship. In his famous commencement address titled, This is Water, he said, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So in the day-to-day trenches of life, there is no such thing as atheism. We were all worshiping every moment of every day. We have no choice. It is our nature. I forget where I first heard this illustration, but someone rightly said that we are not fundamentally homo sapiens, human beings. We are most fundamentally homo doxus, human worshipings. All human beings, their most natural bent is toward worship, and everything we do is worship of something or another. Again, this is not a choice. We don't choose whether we worship. We only choose what we worship. We are this way because God is this way and because we are created in God's image. God is filled with a fiery passion for his own glory. God's passion for his glory is the very thing that brought creation itself into existence. God is always worshiping, and he is worshiping the most supremely valuable being in all of existence, himself. And because this is what spun the universe into existence, again, this is what we ourselves must do all the time with our lives. We must worship someone or something in everything that we do. But what then is worship? What is this thing that we do every day? Indeed, that we are doing all the time, whether we like it or not. You sitting in your seat right now are worshiping right now. You may be worshiping the true God or you may be worshiping an idol in your heart right now. I don't know. I can't see your hearts. I can only see your faces. But even right now, you are worshiping where you sit. I'm going to define worship from our text this morning in just a moment, but before I do that, I also want to give you just a very practical definition that's been beneficial for me personally over the years. This definition makes it easiest for me to discern in my own heart, Rob, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the true God 
Or are you worshiping something else? That personal definition that I use is that worship is saying to something, you are better. That's what worship is. Worship is saying to something or to someone, you are better. So when I am staring stupidly at my phone, when I could be helping my wife or my kids, or when I could be turning my face toward God, I am saying to my phone in that moment, phone, you are better. You are better than my wife. You are better than my children. You are better than God. And so I am worshiping my phone in that moment. When I end every day staring at the TV, instead of doing anything that would truly benefit myself or others, I'm saying to the TV, I'm saying, TV, you are better. You are better than any other activity I could be doing. That's why I am sitting in front of you right now watching you. And so in every moment of life, whatever we choose to do, we are saying in that thing that we are doing, we are saying this thing, you are better than these other options that I have. We are worshiping. And again, we either are worshiping the true God or we are worshiping idols. Of course, we don't like to think of our actions in these terms. We don't like to think of all of our actions as worship because it makes us look bad, does it not? Because it makes us look stupid. Who, after all, in their right minds would worship a phone or would worship a TV? Isn't that idiotic? Well, yes, it is idiotic, but yet it's what millions of Americans do every single day. It's what many of us here in this room find ourselves doing all too often. And yet I can hear your reply saying, but, you know, Pastor Rob, I'm only human. I need a break every now and then. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Well, to reply to that objection, I want to again define idolatry, but I want to look in particular at our text this morning. How does our text this morning define idolatry? Our text has a very simple and powerful definition of idolatry. It's actually even shorter than mine. Mine was three words, you are better. Well, the text gives us two words. It's found in verse 17. Verse 17 of our text says, And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. So notice that word there. He worships it. And then what is this worship? He prays to it and says, Deliver me. You can stop there. Deliver me. This is another really straightforward way to define what worship is. Worship is when you say to someone or something, Deliver me. It's in those moments when you recognize that you're human. You recognize that you're feeling uncomfortable in some way, that you need help in some way. And so what do you turn to in that moment of discomfort? What do you turn to in that moment of need? What do you turn to and say, deliver me, I need help. That thing that you turn to in those moments is your idol. It is what you are worshiping. What do you think will deliver you? So again, just from that hypothetical response that I mentioned a moment ago, you recognize that you have a habit of looking too much at your phone or looking too much at TV or some other God like this, but you justify it and you say, well, I'm only human. I need a break. But just look briefly for a moment, a little more at those words, I need a break. What are you saying with those words? If I could extend them, I think what we are saying with those words is something like, you know, I'm really depleted right now and I need restoration. 
I'm really spent right now and I, I need to be recharged. I'm really wiped out and I need some time to regain my strength. And this is, of course, an entirely legitimate feeling. After all, we are human and one of the fundamental ways that God created us to be distinct from him is that we are dependent and needy creatures. And so there is nothing wrong with confessing each and every day that we do need a break, that we do need to slow down, that we do need to rest. If we did not do that, it would be a sure sign of pride and arrogance. But the question is, what do we turn to in those moments? What do we turn to when we know that we are really worn out? In those times when we feel really aware of our weakness and inability to do very much. In other words, what do we turn to and say, deliver me, help me? Again, the answer for far too many people and even the answer for myself far too often is that I turn to my phone or I turn to the TV and I say to those things, deliver me. I say, help me. I say, restore me right now in this moment of weakness I have. And is not the act of flipping through channels or doing different searches the same act as prayer? It's as if we're reaching out to these devices, pleading with them, coaxing them to deliver us, to say, show me something on your screen right now that will make me feel better. And so we engage in this act of prayer to the TV or this act of prayer to our phone saying, please show me something that will make me feel good again. That will make me feel whole again. And so just like these idolaters of Isaiah 44, we pray to our TVs and phones via the words we type and the buttons we push and we say, deliver me for you are my God. If you're an unbeliever here this morning and you think of yourself as not very religious, I hope you will realize right now that you are very religious. That even though you may not consciously have a God picked out that you worship on a regular basis, you most certainly subconsciously have gods that you worship every moment of every day. Every human being on this planet is extremely religious. It is just a question of what religion we are following. So I hope you start to get a picture of how we truly are worshiping every moment of every day. Again, even where you sit right now, you are saying in your heart about something, you are better, you are saying in your heart about something, deliver me. And so all of life is worship. So understanding this basic definition of worship, I want to Turn now to our text to see how our text talks about the difference between worshiping God and worshiping idols. First, I want to look at what this text says is different between God and idols. What's the difference between the true God and idols? Well, the primary difference that this text tells us is that the true God is living. He has existence, whereas idols are all dead even non-existent beings. In verse 6 of our text, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now again, as we've just thought about worship, think about what a radical statement that is for God to say, besides me, there is no God. He's saying, besides me, 
There is no one who can restore you. Besides me, there is no one who can help you, no one who can comfort you, no one who is better than me. If he is God alone, that means there is only one place we can ever turn when we are depleted, when we are weak, and hope to find restoration. He is the only God that exists. He is the only God that is alive, that can actually help. Isaiah plays out this idea at length in verses 12 to 17. Notice how often he repeats what the craftsman does or what the ironsmith does. So in verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool. He fashions it and he works it. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. And then 13, he switches to the carpenter. The carpenter stretches. He marks. He shapes. And on and on about all this work that is done for idols. The idol is not able to help. The idol is not able to deliver because the idol has no real existence. The idol is not alive. In contrast to the true God of all the universe. Now, this has a couple of huge practical ramifications. First, Christian, consider what great hope this should give you. Is there any way in which you are feeling discouraged or fearful or anxious or tired? Know that God is alive and he is able to work in your situation to change it for the better. As they say in the black church, he can make ways out of no ways. He is God and he is God all by himself. We are not deists. We do not believe in a God who is far away, who is like the great clockmaker, who has simply wound up the universe but no longer really intervenes. No, God is able to bring about whatever purpose he desires and he is able to work on your behalf even today. So do not delay to place your hope in God, but look to him this very moment and he can act. He is a living God. The second huge implication that this has is it means that idols, by their very nature, can only ever take from us and they can never give back to us. They can only ever deplete and they can never nourish. Again, because they are dead. They have no life in themselves. Again, just look at this long list of activity that the craftsman must go through to make an idol. I think the point Isaiah is making is it's just look, by the end of this task, he is physically exhausted at the end of the process, only to have to fall down to what he has just made and ask this idol to deliver him. It's like he needs rescue simply from the toil of making an idol. And oh, what a perfect picture this is of our lives, beloved. We all go after easy-to-obtain things, thinking that these things will satisfy us, thinking that these things will give us life, only to discover that these things only keep demanding more from us, and they make us feel more dead than alive. Addicts are kind of the ultimate picture of this reality. They begin by trying a small amount of something that they think will give them pleasure or take away pain or satisfy them in some way, only to find that this idol keeps demanding more and not actually satisfying them and demanding more and not actually satisfying and demanding more until their whole life is turned upside down when they didn't expect that at all. 
But beloved, all sin is addictive. Precisely because idols are dead and the sin will never satisfy. You will always go after a sin. It will never succeed. And therefore, you will always think you need a little more of it. All sin is addictive because all idols are dead. We get a taste of something that seems satisfying and all of a sudden we are depriving ourselves of sleep and health just to get that thing. These are dead idols that demand our service but can never repay, can never give us life in return. But again, God, on the other hand, is always and forever able to pour out more than we could ever hope to give. Acts 17.25 says, He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Beloved, one of the glorious realities of the fact that God is alive and that he is this eternal fountain of joy and life is that we could never possibly outgive God. We could never serve him so much that he could not fill us up, that he could not repay to us everything that we have poured out. Because he is alive and he is the fountain of all life and all that is good. This is why Jesus and Jesus alone can say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give rest. Because idols fundamentally make us weary. They fundamentally make us carry a heavy load because we are serving them and serving them and not getting anything in return. And so Jesus instead promises, come to me and I will give you rest. He says this not because there's nothing to do in our service to God, but because anything that we could do in service to God, again, will be made up tenfold in what the Lord gives back to us in return. And so his yoke is indeed easy and his burden is light. Jesus and Jesus alone can give rest. Again, anywhere else we go saying, give me rest, we will surely fail because those idols cannot give. So this is the first thing that our text teaches us is simply the difference between God and idols. But now I want to look at what this text tells us about the consequences of worshiping God or idols. The consequence of worshiping idols, as this text teaches us, and I will show, is that we become dead like them. We become dead like the idols that we worship. But the reverse is also true. The consequence of worshiping the true God is that you become alive like him. Let me say just at the outset here that on this point, I'm very indebted to G.K. Beale's excellent book, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. But notice in verses 18 to 20 how these idolaters are described. Just as this idol has been described as having no life but is requiring service, so now we get this description of the idolater. They, that is the idolater, know not nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. So notice there at first, just in verse 18, what characterizes those who worship idols? 
They are blind. They cannot see. And their hearts cannot understand. Heart is just a biblical word for mind or the the conscious aspect of ourselves. So it's not just our organ, but our whole aspect of understanding. It's fundamentally broken, this verse says. And so we cannot see. Our hearts cannot understand. And then go on to verse 19. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And so again, he's describing the assertity of idolatry, and he's saying no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment. So this person is totally devoid of knowledge and discernment. And verse 20, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He cannot deliver himself. Beloved, this is exactly what I have just said about the nature of idols. Idols cannot deliver. And so as you worship idols, you become this person who cannot deliver yourself. You fall deeper and deeper into the pit. And so you become like what you worship. Just as an idol cannot see, cannot hear, cannot think, cannot understand, so the longer you persist in worshiping idols, the less you can spiritually see, the less you can spiritually hear, the less you can feel, the more dead you become inside. Beloved, this doesn't only have individual consequences, it also has consequences for society as a whole. As we as a culture engage in more and more worship of trivial things, more and more worship of entertainment and money and things of this nature, we as a culture will become more and more dead, more and more disconnected from reality because we become like what we worship. Every person who has experienced addiction, who has gone after an idol for a prolonged period of time, is able to testify to this very truth, that that thing that they thought would give life only leads them deeper and deeper into darkness. And we may not realize it as much in our day-to-day lives of our sins are not very magnificent or grand on their scale, but be sure that our sins nevertheless carry with them this very weight. Every step that we take down the path of worshiping idols is a step we take to blindness and to deafness and to not discerning what is true. But, as I said, the reverse of this is also true. The glorious reality is that if we turn away from worshiping idols and if we turn to worship the true God, then we experience increasing life and light and joy and every good thing. I just want to go to three different New Testament texts to demonstrate this. The first one is very straightforward. Romans 2 verse 7. It says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So those who by patience and well-doing, that is those who worship God in the mundane trenches of day-to-day life, patiently well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, 
That is, this person is often, often considering or putting before themselves what they truly hope to gain from life with God. They are considering often the subjects of glory and honor and immortality. They are not focused on idols, but they are fixed upon the glory of God, the honor of God, and the immortality or eternity of God. And what happens to people that focus on these things that are patient and well-doing? Well, the conclusion is, it says, He will give, God will give eternal life. And so you seek after the Lord, you worship the Lord, and what do you receive? In the course of this worship, you receive eternal life. Another text that makes it a little more clear, Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So this is talking about the day-to-day experience of every Christian. What are we to do day by day? We're to put off the old self, that is the, the flesh, the sinful desires that we have, and we put on the new self. Well, what does this new self look like? It says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the more we put on this new self, the more we reflect the image of God, the more we become like what we worship. As we lean into the grace of God that has been poured out in Jesus Christ, we become what we behold. We are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, and we ourselves become people full of grace and joy. Lastly, I want to look at the ultimate apex of where this heads, and this is one that we read together in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42. It says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And then jump down to verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So, beloved, God's plan for us in this coming age, as we persist in worshiping God, as we persist in beholding God, giving glory to God, is that we will be raised with a more glorious body than we could ever fathom right now to more perfectly display the glory of God. We will become beings full of light and life. But again, if we worship idols, we will become dead like them. We will lose our hearing. We will lose our sight. And yet, if you worship God, you will become radiantly and forever alive. This is the glorious design of God in his creation. Now third, and finally, I want to be clear, just as this text is clear, about just how critical God's grace is for this whole process. So a a misunderstanding of what I have just said would be to say, ah, now I see that I am a bad person because I am worshiping idols, and I want to be a good person, and so I can only get there by worshiping God. 
So let me start worshiping God more and I will become a better person. Now, this is a very good desire and obviously God calls us to worship him more. But if you think that you can suddenly just leave behind your idols and just turn and just start worshiping God more, well, it shows that you do not understand the full scope of what the scriptures are saying. You do not understand the full scope of our deadness in idolatry before we are made alive with Christ. When Isaiah says, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand, he doesn't just mean that they will have a hard time seeing or a hard time understanding. And if they put forth enough effort, maybe then they could start to understand, and maybe then they could start to see. No, he really means that they cannot see. They are physically, spiritually unable to see, just as a dead man is unable to move at all. When he says, he feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He means that this person truly cannot deliver themselves. This person truly cannot bring himself to admit that he worships an idol. It is an impossibility. Beloved, let us never underestimate the depth of human depravity. Let the depths of human depravity never surprise us. Beloved, I believe that all of us here in this room have come from lives of doing horrendously wicked things because we were utterly blind to the glory and the greatness of God. I myself have done things that would probably shock you if you knew about them. I'm sure that many of you have done things that you think would be shocking to others if they knew about them. But let us not be shocked, beloved. We are all sinners. And part of being a sinner is not simply doing wrong things, but it's being so blind to the wrong things that we do that we don't even know that they are wrong, that we don't even know that they are evil. And therefore, we continually go deeper down this well. Again, idolatry begets worse idolatry. As Christians, we should consider this expected human behavior, not abnormal human behavior. We should not be surprised when someone comes to us and confesses some terrible thing that we're done. We should be surprised if God would ever choose to preserve someone from something like that. And so I hope that no matter what background you may be coming from, no matter what you may have even been doing last night before you came here, know that there is nothing in your past. Know that there is nothing that you can do right now that I would find shocking or outside the bounds of human experience. I myself was once totally blind and totally deaf doing things that no sane person would ever do because I was locked into this blindness of idolatry. And this means, beloved, that if our blindness was so truly total, that if our corruption was so truly complete, then there remained only one possible way for us to ever have an interest in worshiping God. And it wasn't because we worked really hard. It wasn't because we were smarter than other people. It was because God himself, our salvation, because he acted. 
because he intervened in our lives, because he is the only one who has life in himself. He is the only one who can save us in the midst of our deadness and blindness. It's only him who can give sight to the blind and ears to the deaf. And beloved, this is what God did in Jesus Christ. Beloved, when Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, hung dead upon the tree, this was God saying, my life for yours. This was God saying, you have no hope of life. You have no reason for hope at all. Therefore, let me come and die so that you can live. Look at Isaiah 44, verses 21 and 22. It says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. Pause there for just a moment. God says, I formed you. We've just been through this lengthy passage about how humans form idols about how they work, about how they slave day after day to make a better idol, to make an idol that will deliver them. And all these attempts fail. And here, in three short words, God blows all that up and he says, I formed you. I gave you all that you need, all that you require for life and godliness. And then he says, Oh, Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. He's saying, I am the living God who can work in your life today. I am the one who formed you. I am the only one who can perfect you. And then verse 22 is where we see him point forward to this glorious work of Christ. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Beloved, in order for us to give God so much as a thought, our sins must be removed from us. Because our sin of idolatry has left us in a completely dead and desolate place, and dead people don't look Dead people don't believe. Dead people don't grab salvation when it is thrown out to them. They are dead. And so when Jesus hung upon that tree, all of our sin was absorbed by him so that the effect of idolatry would no longer have its hold. Jesus said, I will become this idolater who can no longer hear, who can no longer see. I will go down into death just like every idolater deserves, so that when I raise to newness of life, you who formerly worshipped idols will be able to serve the living God. You will be delivered from the destructive force of idolatry by the life of Jesus Christ at work in you. A life that will be ever more and more abounding as eternity goes on. And so, beloved, precisely because Jesus has died and risen again, we know that this destructive cycle of idolatry need not persist. Jesus has broken it by his own death and resurrection. And so we can enter into life with God by simple faith in Jesus Christ. 
saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that that death that you died was the death that I deserved, being an idolater, deserving to become blind in every way, just as my idols are, and yet because you died, I believe that I can be united with you now in resurrection life to worship the true God forever and ever. Beloved, my encouragement to you is that you would believe in the cross of Christ this morning. And that as you look to Jesus, as you look to the deliverance that he gave upon his cross, that you would experience deliverance from the tyranny of idols. That tyranny where we serve day after day, never finding enough, never being satisfied. We are able to escape that vicious cycle of idolatry and we are able by the grace of God alone to enter into this life of beholding God and becoming like Him. Beloved, just last week on this same passage, I preached on how our salvation means that we are saved in order to behold the glory of God and give praise to Him. Beloved, as we behold His incredible glory, a glory that is so bright that right now our eyes cannot even glimpse it, As we behold that glory, God imparts bit by bit that glory, that majesty, that joy, that life to us that we cannot find anywhere else. And it only becomes, it only comes to us because Jesus died and rose again. Would you pray with me now? I'll begin us and then I'll open it to you for prayers of confession and intercession to God. Heavenly Father, we praise you that even though we ourselves do deserve the fate that every idolater deserves, that even though we deserve to be dead and blind and deaf and unable to deliver ourselves and all of these things, God, you nevertheless broke in and you saved us, God, when we could not save ourselves. And so, God, I pray right now, for anyone who is here who still feels trapped in sin, who still feels trapped in past wrongs that they have done and that were done to them, who still feels themselves to be in this cycle of death. God, would you intervene in this cycle by your sheer mercy, God, Deliver them from this lifestyle of destruction and death. And Lord, bring them in to the virtuous cycle of worship you unto life. God, I pray that you would also hear our prayers now regarding this world around us that has many needs. Hear our prayers regarding our own sins that we know we need deliverance from. And so God, in this way, would we pray to you as the living God who is able to deliver and help us right now in our sins and in the troubles of the world.